Well, good morning again. My name is Derek. If I haven't met you, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We are uh, almost finished now with the, the series that we've been doing in Romans chapter 8. And you've probably heard me say this since we've been in this series, is that Romans 8 it may, be the, may be the highlight of the whole Bible. It may be the pinnacle of all of Scripture. And as we're in nearing the end here, these last few verses, what we're going to look at this week and next week, are, are really kind of the pinnacle of the pinnacle. We, we have reached the highest wonderful heights. Some of the most elevated and glorious language in all of the New Testament is in these verses. So we're just going to look at two verses this morning, Romans 8, 28 through 30. Uh, I normally read from the English Standard Version. We're going to read from the NIV this morning. I'm going to tell you why here in just a little bit. Uh, but listen now to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful that we get to come and sit under it. We're grateful that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. So Lord, we ask as we come to learn from your word this morning that you would clear our eyes and unstop our ears, soften our hearts that you would work by the power of your spirit to enable us to believe more fully, that we might know you and love you and follow you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, if you are a fan of, of Abraham Lincoln, you may know that there are, there are roughly something like 16,000 books that have been written about Abraham Lincoln. 16,000. Now, Lincoln was a guy who was, you know, he was born and lived in the modern era, right, where, you know, we have all of those things uh, like easy ways to write things down and printing presses to disseminate a lot of information. And Lincoln was a public figure. He was the president of the United States, and so people took notice of what he was saying. And we have correspondences that he wrote and things that his friends said and people that knew him. So we have a lot of information about Abraham Lincoln, enough information to fill 16,000 books, yet he is still a bit of an odd figure. We're not totally sure what to do with him. Scholars are, are really divided in a lot of ways of the question, who was Abraham Lincoln? What was he really all about? Now, if we can't get our hands around Abraham Lincoln in 16,000 books. How are we going to get our hands and our minds around the Lord who is the creator of all things, the eternal, almighty creator of the universe? Well, here's the, uh, the short answer, humbly and on his terms. And as we open up God's word, one of the great privileges that we have is that God has revealed himself to us. He has told us what we can know about him. And he has done so on his terms and according to his, his loving care for us, he's shown us, here's what I want you to know about who I am. And you know, in these two little verses, we learn so much about who God is. 
Paul opens verse 28 by saying, we know. So what is it that we know about God from these two verses in Romans 8? Well, we're going to find actually 10 things. 10 things that we know about God from Romans 8, 28. That's right. You heard me right. It's a 10-point sermon this morning. So buckle up and get ready, and let's dive in and see what we can know about God from these great verses. All right, let's look at the first one. God is at work. We learned that right from the beginning. God is at work. And here's the reason why I actually chose the NIV for us to read this morning is because it is actually different in the way that it's laid out than most other translations are. I want you to listen to the way, again, that the NIV reads this. And then I'll read it to you from the ESV. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him is the way that Paul starts out in the NIV. Now listen to the ESV, how we hear it here. If I can find it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. The ESV is actually following a tradition uh, that started a long time ago. The authorized version and the King James version and the New American Standard version all say something similar like that. And did you hear the difference between the two? Is that the subject is different. Who's doing the work? Is it all things or is it God? It's important that we get that, isn't it? It's important that we understand who the subject is. Who's really working? Because if we misunderstand that, we can actually get this idea that's pretty prevalent in our society that's just this. is like, you know, everything will kind of just work itself out. Everything's going to be okay. Why? I don't know. Just because it's kind of going to be okay. It's going to work itself out. Everything will be all right. All things will work together for good. Don't worry. But actually, what's the most closest to the, the original language, the Greek here, is that God is the one doing the work. Doug, should I just move over here? Would that be easier? Are we good? Okay. So God is the one who is actually at work. And that's an important thing to remember. It's important to remember that God is at work because that is a big deal. When you went to sleep last night, God was working. When you woke up this morning, God was already at work. When you are confused when you are frustrated, when you are lazy, God is none of those things. He is continually, always at work. When I was an RUF campus minister, that was one of the foundational things that we believed. We called them presuppositions. These foundational truths that we took with us onto campus, one of the, the primary ones was God is at work. So that before I have spoken a word or met a student or preached a sermon, God has actually been at work on this campus. Before I showed up, God was here working. That is hugely, hugely important. I'll move. All right, we'll go from here today. It's a lot better. God is at work, and here's one of the reasons why that's super important is because when God is at work, it has something to do with how we can trust him, doesn't it? If God is not at work, then he's not really reliable. If God is not at work, then he's really kind of like the alcoholic parent, right? When you're not really sure when you come home if they're going to be there or if they're going to show up to your sporting event or your senior musical. 
That is not true about God. What the Bible reveals about God is that he is completely and utterly trustworthy, that he is working at all times. Here's the second thing that we learn, is that God is not only at work, he is at work for the good of his people. We read that in all things, God is working together for good. All things, he's working together for good. I had a friend that used to use this phrase. He said, uh, God uses sin sinlessly. I love that. God uses sin sinlessly. What he meant was that God takes even the broken things, the messed up things about this world, even our own sin, and he works them together for good in a sinless way. That is hard for me to get my head around, but it is what the Bible proclaims. Uh, All things that God works together for good include a lot of things that we'd rather not be on that list, don't they? In fact, just in Romans 8, if you look back at what we've said before earlier, we learn that Christians are to suffer with Christ. And so if God is working together for the good of his people and he's using all things to work that good, then suffering is part of that all things, isn't it? We also read in verse 23 there that not only is all creation groaning, but people, human beings, we ourselves are groaning, waiting in eager expectation for God to renew things. So the all things that God is using for our good, that he's working together for our God, it includes the groaning too. It includes the hard times. Because what God's desire is, the good that he is working for us, is that we might know him and enjoy him. And friends, sometimes that comes about in the most difficult of ways. Listen to the words of this, uh, this hymn. This is John Newton wrote this hymn in 1779. Listen to the way he talks about God's desire for us and how he oftentimes brings us there. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. It was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and he let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. All things, God is working together for our good. I have a good friend who's got a 17-year-old son who's autistic. And his son's favorite thing to do in the world is to jump. To jump up and down wherever he wants to be, and especially on a trampoline. He loves trampolines. And I was talking to my friend this week on the phone. He said, you know, last week we spent four days in a row at the trampoline park. And then he said, I mean, William loves the trampoline park. It's his favorite place in the world. He said, I hate 
the trampoline park. <laughs> it smells bad. I don't like the way it sounds. I don't like the way it looks. I don't want to be there ever. Yet I found myself there four days in a row last week. Friends, God is working for my friend's good through the, the suffering, the waiting, the groaning, the difficulty in his life. If you've got a special needs child, you know exactly that feeling. If you've lived the life of a human being, you probably know that feeling as well. Here's the third thing. Not only is God at work and work for good, but God is at work for those who love him. You know, we could ask the question, uh, what describes a Christian? What's a Christian? How do you describe who a Christian is? And one very faithful, reasonable answer that we could find from this passage is that a Christian is one who loves God. Jesus said that the, the, the first and foremost, most important commandment of all was that we are to love the Lord our God with our whole heart and mind and soul and strength. And so Christians are those who love God. That is our goal. That is our desire. And so one side of the coin for what it means to be a Christian, what describes a Christian, is they are those who love God. But there's another side of the coin, too. And we find that actually here in our fourth point, is that those who love God love him because they have been called by him. Listen again just to the way that this is laid out in Scripture. God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Those two phrases there to end with are actually held in parallel, meaning that they are supposed to be synonymous. They are two sides of the same coin. And so what it means to love God is actually that we have been called by God before time eternal and called by him to himself. And what it means to be called by God is that we are those who love him in return. They are one and the same, and they cannot ever be taken apart. To love God is to be called by God, and to be called by God is to respond out of love. Those of you who were uh, at, the, at the retreat this weekend saw me uh, have the wonderful pl pleasure and privilege of being able to baptize Everett Payne. And, and I love it when we, when we baptize um, kids who have the ability to, to speak the words of Scripture and to hear just the, the beautiful proclamation of the truth of the gospel from the words of a child is such a wonderful privilege. Uh, when I baptized the, the Jacobson boys not too long ago, when I met with them, with Reese, I said, Reese, why do you want to be baptized? And he said, because I love Jesus. And I said, good answer. That's a great one. It's so great to hear a child say, I love Jesus. And that is in some way what we're marking when we baptize. But here's the beautiful thing, is that we're not just marking a temporal event and the response of this person. We're actually marking an eternal event as well. Is that when I baptized Everett last weekend, we were marking the fact that God has called him since before he knew how to love God in return that God called him before he was born, that God called him before he was even a twinkle in the eyes of his parents. God has worked eternally, and it is glorious, and we get to celebrate it. Now let me just pause for, for just a second and just, just address maybe what some of you might be thinking. And it may be this is, uh, okay, pastor, that, that sounds great, um, but if God is working for the good of those who love him, if God is working all things for the good of those he's called, what, what, if I, what if I don't love him? What if I'm not called? 
what if I'm not a Christian? Then, then, then what is God's activity and relationship to me? Let me first of all just say, I'm, if that's you this morning, I'm so glad you're here. And I would welcome all of your questions. I would love to sit down and talk with you about that because there's a lot to work out in that question. But what I want you to hear most clearly this morning is that God is saying something very clearly and pointed, pointedly to you today. And he is saying, come to me. Come to me with your questions. Come to me with your doubts. Come to me with your sin. Come to me with your confusion. And let me take it and let you find rest in me. Come and let me give you an identity that is based on more than your action or the actions that have been done to you. Come and let me give you a security that is based on something more than just your activity or inactivity. Come and let me give you a love that you have never known before. Friends, if that is you this morning, come to Jesus. He tells us that the angels throw a party whenever a repentant sinner comes to him. All right, let's move on to point five here. It's this, is that God knows and loves us before we know and love him. So we, we read in verse 29, for, God, for those God foreknew, and we'll just pause there, foreknew. What does that mean? What does it mean that God foreknew us? Well, you probably can understand it just from the way that the construction of the word is. It means that he knew us beforehand that he knew us before, that he has eternally known us. But to really understand what's being gotten at here in this passage, we need to understand what that word know even means in the Bible. Because when the Bible uses that word, I knew you, it means more than what we oftentimes think. It means more than just cognition. God oftentimes speaks in the prophets things like this. He says this in Amos 3. You only, and he's talking to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that God doesn't know anybody else in the earth? He's not aware of them? He's not aware of the rest of the earth? Of course not. God created all things. Everything belongs to him. So it's not about him knowing who they are. It's about him knowing his people in a special, deep, intimate, relational way. We read in Genesis 4 that Adam knew his wife Eve. They didn't just meet. They were knowing each other in a deep, intimate way. And all throughout the Bible, actually, when we hear that kind of language, the overtone we get is not just of knowledge, it is of love. In fact, the theologian John Murray says, whenever you see the word foreknown, it is so synonymous, actually, with love that you can replace it with the word foreloved. For those God foreloved... When Joy and I had been dating for about a month, she told her mom that she had met the man that she was going to marry. And then she told me that. Um, I mean, ladies, you know, if that's, uh, if you're thinking, if you've been dating somebody for a month and you, you think of telling him that, you may want to keep that to yourself. It's probably going to freak him out. But here's the thing. She was right. <laughs> Here we are nearly 25 years later. And she knew and loved me. Before I even knew what I wanted for lunch, she knew. That is the way that God knows and loves us. Six, God not only knows us, but he chooses us before we choose him. God chooses us before we choose him. And we've finally now gotten to to the big bad P word here. 
Uh, you know the Presbyterian joke of uh, how many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? None. Only God can change a light bulb, friends. We get this bad rap, of course, as the frozen chosen because of this word, predestination. And we don't have enough time to dive in fully to what it means, but here's the quick down and dirty. Predestination means that God chose us before we chose him. Is that the decision made in salvation was God's decision before it was our decision. Is that God actually made a choice to choose us to save us when we were running the other way. And this is actually all throughout the Bible, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament. God goes and finds Abraham, who is literally just a wandering uh, pagan, and Abraham happy in his little wandering paganness, and God comes to him and says, Abraham, you're going to be my guy. I'm going to build my church, my family through you. Jesus says that no one comes to him, to the Son, unless it's the Father who draws them. Peter, when he begins 1 Peter, says he addresses the letter to the elect who God has foreknown. It is all throughout, actually, the Bible, this idea that God has to work on us before we can work on him, before we can respond and work to respond to him. In Ephesians 2, the image that Paul gives us of Christians before their salvation is of dead people. It's not people who are running to Jesus saying, yay, I want to be in the party. It's people who are dead and need to be raised to new life. And that is the work that the Lord does in our hearts. We're like Lazarus, ready to be stinking in the grave, and Jesus comes and raises us to new life. I love the way that this commentator puts it. He says, the foundation of our salvation is not the works that evidence it, or even the faith that appropriates it, or even the experience that testifies to it. It is the gracious and merciful decision of God to raise us from death to life. If you've ever had to rescue a cat out of a tree, you know this feeling. When we first got our cat, he climbed way too high in the tree, a height that we now know he's just fine with, but it kind of freaked us out. So we decided we had to rescue our cat. And Joy's younger brother climbed to a, a very dangerous height to find our cat while we were down below holding a blanket like, you know, like old firemen, you know, for him to be thrown into. And Taylor literally had to take the cat, who you would think would, would like to be rescued at this point, who wanted nothing to do with it. And he had to literally rip him from the branch, his claws dug into the branch, and he got scratched all up. And the cat was so angry, he had to rip the cat off and throw him down so that we could catch him in the blanket. There was no like, hey, high fives, we did this together, great job, wonderful teamwork. No, it was all Taylor. It was no cat. That is the way that God talks about spiritual rescue in the Bible, is that we're not ready to say, great, Jesus, we did it. Well done, you know, high fives to Jesus, good teamwork. No, it is Jesus who takes us from death to life. Seven, and this is really important, is that God chooses us for a purpose. Let me read this again. For, the, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. See, there's also no high fives about saying, yeah, great, look, we're the elect. God chose us, cool. So we're just better than everybody else, I guess, you know, suckers. No, that's not the way it is. God has chosen his people for a purpose, that they might be conformed to his image and that they might reflect as images, his grace to the world. We are chosen so that we might be vehicles of salvation to the rest of the world. 
Think about a group who's ca- trapped, you know, in a cave. They've been exploring a cave, and they can't get out. So they, they choose one of their own to, to squeeze through the tiny passage and swim through this area so that they can get out and go find help. The goal of being chosen is not so that they can be the only one chosen. It's so that they can actually go and find rescue for others. And that is also the way that we are called. We are called to be those who are conformed to the image of Jesus so that we might proclaim his excellencies in the world. Eight. We're almost done here, guys. Eight. God calls. Another wonderful truth we see here, and this is, this is really wonderful. God calls us. So what, what do we mean by God calling us? There's a quick theological lesson here. When we talk about calling, we can use typically two different kind of categories to talk about calling. We talk about the general call and what we call the effectual call, the effective call. The effectual call is what Paul is talking about here, is that when God calls, we respond. The effectual call never goes out and comes back flat. It never returns empty. When God moves and calls, it happens. When he decides, it happens. That's the effectual call. It's God's calling on our heart that raises us from death to life. But it comes in combination, actually, with the general call as well, which is the preaching of the word, the gathering of God's people, evangelism, Lives lived in glory to him. Even the all of creation, God says, is crying out in that way. There is a general call that goes out to the world to repent and to turn to Jesus. And here's the point here is that the two are inseparably combined. We read of the effectual call here in Romans 8. In fact, he'll go in Romans 9 to talk even more about it. And then in Romans 10, Paul has this argument where he says this, how is anybody going to ever turn and be saved if they don't ever hear the gospel? And how is anybody going to ever hear the gospel if nobody goes and preaches to them? That's the general call. And that's the beautiful, just, just mind-blowing, you know, mind-stretching kind of truth about the gospel is that God is actually using the feeble actions of people like us, the general call, our lives lived in evangelism, our inviting our friends to church, our inviting our neighbors over for dinner, our loving people and telling them the truth, my weak and feeble little preaching, God is using those things to affect his effectual call on the lives of others and for the Holy Spirit to work bringing dead people to life. Isn't that beautiful and confusing and fantastic? Number nine, God justifies. And we've talked a lot really in recent weeks about justification, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it except just to define it one more time. Justification is God's act a free grace in which he pardons us of our sin and declares us righteous based on what Jesus has done, not on what we have done. I'll say it again. It's an act of God's free grace where he pardons our sin and declares us righteous based on Jesus' action, not on our own. We stand before the judge, and he not only tells us, I'm not only proclaiming you not guilty, I am proclaiming you righteous perfect, innocent. That's justification. And then finally, God glorifies this wonderful truth, glorification. God is making all things new. We started with God is at work. 
we're finishing with, with, with the work that God is actually accomplishing. You know, the Bible says that there will be a time when we will not struggle to love our spouse. There will be a time that we will not struggle to know what to do with our children. There will be a time that we will not experience loneliness. There will be a time that we will not be frustrated with our work. There will be a time where countries don't invade each other, where women and children aren't abused, where people aren't held captive or in slavery. There will be a time where there is perfect justice and perfect righteousness and perfect peace. And Paul says that that time is so secure that he actually speaks about it like it's already happened. Do you see that? He's actually using the past tense. He is talking about a future event that is so secure that he can say that it's just like it's already happened. God is going to glorify not only the world, but he's going to remake us into the glorious creatures that we were created to be before sin broke us. That time, friends, is coming. All right, what do we do with this? Let me quickly wrap up here. Three quick reflections. First is this, is that what ties all of these 10 things together? And one of the things is that they are all about God's faithfulness. Do you notice this just unbroken string from eternity past to eternity future? From foreknowledge and predestination all the way into glorification and completely unbroken. What a testimony to God's faithfulness. There is never a time in which God says, oh, you know, shoot, your name was written there for a while, but there was a clerical error, and we messed up, and you're not in the book anymore. Sorry. No, that doesn't happen. There is never a time where God says, ah, you know, my bad, I just let a few things fall through the cracks. No. The process that he starts, he always finishes. The process that begins in eternity past is finished in eternity future. These are words and concepts that our tiny brains can't even, can't even figure out, but they are the wonderful truths that the Bible proclaims is that God is faithful. Second thing you see that ties all of this together is there are no caveats. There are no ifs and buts and if onlys and maybes. There are no hoops to jump through. There is simply the proclamation of God's glory, his effectiveness, his power, his sovereignty, and our response to that. Which leads me to the third thing. What are we to do? What are we to do with this? Well, you heard me earlier say, you know, if, you, if you're not sure if you're a Christian this morning, there's something that God is saying to you, and it's come to me. Guess what? Same thing God's saying to Christians. Come to me. After seeing how faithful I am, after seeing this incredible, unbroken string of eternal promises, after seeing my power, after seeing that I am at work, after seeing the way that I know and I love you, after seeing the way that I pursue you, after seeing how I raise dead people to new life, after seeing how I justify the guilty, after seeing how I love people who are totally unlovable, after seeing that, come to me. Worship me. 
love me, follow me. Let's pray. God in heaven, what, uh, what glorious things we see here. Gosh, just packed into these two verses. and Ten points is not enough. It's not enough to know the infinite treasures that you have given us here in your word. Lord, will you just uh, give us a little bit? Let us hold on to maybe one or two of these things. Let us treasure them so that they would change us. Thank you for your sovereign love and mercy and care. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.